Today, on Pasha's Yisro, I want to um, discuss with you the trauma that is a revelation. The revelation on Mount Sinai. So I want to start with a poem by Chaim Guri, and it's called Heritage. And it's really about the Akeda, but I hope by the end I will be able to convince you <laughs> that there is a relevance of this poem by Chaim Guri called Yerusha. In, it's written in Hebrew. Yerusha, our heritage. Ha'ayel ba'acharon, the ram came last of all. Lo yada Avraham kihu meshiv al she'elat hayaled. And Abraham did not know that it came to answer the boy's question. Rashis ono ke'et yomo arev. The first of his strength, you know, Isaac, when his day was on the wane. Nosor rosh hasov, the old man raised his head. Biroso kilo chalam chalom. Seeing that it was no dream that the angel stood there. Hayeled shehuta me'usarov, the boy wasn't sacrificed. He lived for many years. He saw what pleasure had to offer until his eyes dimmed. And at the end, Aval et hashaahahi horish letzeetzaov. Just a delicious term. <laughs> but this hour, this hour of trauma lying bound on the altar, about to be slaughtered by his father, never left him. Not only never left him, he bequeathed to his offspring. And forevermore, Haim Noladim, they were born, Umachelet Belibom, and a cleaver in their hearts. It's just a stunning poem. It's a stunning poem, which introduces us uh, to our Sedra as to what I consider the trauma uh, of Revelation. And so let's start with our proof text today, which is V'chol Ha'am and all the people, Roim et HaKolot. The people saw, witnessed the Kolot V'lapidim, the thunder and lightning, the blare of the horn, the mountain smoking, and I want you to focus on these words, Vayar Ha'om. And the people saw. The people saw. And what happened when they saw? Vayonu. They saw the smoking volcano. Vayonu. They fell back. Vayamdu Rachok. You know, the Rashi interprets this. And we go straight to Rashi because he's the great interpreter bringing to us the Midrash, and Rashi tells us that a wave of fear carried them backwards. A wave of fear. And that was as a result of Vayar Ha'om, the people saw. Let's look at this idea of this visual, the visual representation of Har Sinai as a volcano is what precipitates Vayonu, they're falling back. The Medrash says they fell back to the, they ran back to the limits of the camp, to the borders of the camp. Now, we know in at the end of the Decalogue, we read first later, Atem re'isem ki min You have been shown visually, 
you have been shown visually that from the heavens God has revealed himself to you. And not only that, even more in Exodus 24, Moshe and Aaron and Nodav and Aviyu and the 70 Zikni Israel. Next, Vayiru et Elokei Yisrael. They see visually the God of Israel. So, Vayechazu, and they beheld him. They stared at him. Vayochlu, Vayishtu. There's two synonyms here. Vayiru, Vayechazu. There is this visual component of seeing the divine in the revelatory form. And as if to blunt that, because the rabbis are maybe embarrassed by it, uh, there is this remarkable, remarkable Sikta de Rav Kahana. Omar Rabbi Hanina Bar Papa, the Holy One, Nire Lahem HaKadosh Baruch Hu. How did he appear? Okay, we saw him. Fine, we saw him. Well, what did he look like? The Torah doesn't tell us what he looked like. All we could see was the fire. No, comes along the Psikta and tells us he appeared to Israel with ponim zeufos, with a stern face. Oh, no, not just that. Ponim Benonis, a kind of face of equanimity. Ponim Masbiros, a friendly face. Ponim Sochakos, a fun face, a face making jokes. And now, what is the point of this Medrash? Omalahem HaKadosh even though you see me in all these dimyonos, a dimyon is an apparition, an appearance, an illusion, I'm still the same personality. You can see me in this way and that way and that way, you know, it's just me. He takes this even... Uh, more graphically, Rabbi Levi, as is his wont in Medrash, very, very remarkable mind. God appeared to them like a, a statue. A statue that, depending on which side you're looking at it, it would look different. So that so that a thousand men might be looking at the same statue and they would all be led to believe that they were looking at each of them, that the statue was looking at each of them. It's an absolutely remarkable psikta talking about the human apprehension of the divine and that how the Psikta is telling us it is not uniform. It is dependent on the receiver. It is dependent on who's looking, just like a statue that reflects back. You know, one thinks of what? The Mona Lisa, right? The brilliance of the Mona Lisa, if you've ever had the privilege of seeing it, it's been off limits during COVID, is that depending on where you are in its position, its eyes seem to follow you. And there's a whole National Geographic that you should read or watch on Leonardo's ability through the use of color to allow that sense of depth perception. And here the same thing, the statue faces on each side. Now, if we go to the Mechilta, let me share that with you because the Mechilta stretches it even further. And the Mechilta says Azoi. Rashi is basing himself on the Mechilta. 
They stood afar. How far? Oh, Mechilsa tells us, The boundary at the base of the mountain was a Hagbalah, and they stood at that boundary, but then they ran away, 12 mil. They were startled and moved back 12 mil again. And then what happened? They came back. There's a kind of oscillation going on. Every time he opened his mouth, they were like flung back. And then they came back, returning, moving forward 12 mil. So there was tw every utterance of the Aseris Hadibros, there was an oscillation of 24 uh, mil, covering 240 mil on that day. That's a lot of mileage. And then when they were fatigued, Something strange happened. He says, you know, this revelation must continue, so I need your help. Could you please go down? Go down. Redu. And go and help your brothers. And bringing a proof text, an amazing proof text from Psalm 68. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. Yedudin, Yedudin. Redu. It's a kind of uh, pun. Beautiful. And not only the angels were conscripted to help, even God himself bringing this beautiful song of songs, his left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. Meaning the left hand, which swipes with the left, the sinister, that flung them back. His power of his words was so powerful that they were flung back. But his right hand, his loving hand, brought them back. Okay, so after that happens, they're drawn forward, leap back, darting to and fro like a flickering flame. And first it's merely the angels, and then God himself embraces them. And so the image conveyed here is a choreography of ambivalence. I love that. Rachel Edelman's term, a choreography of ambivalence, rushing back, coming forward, going back. I mean, what does that signify in the image? The image conveys a choreography of ambivalence, the desire to hear the word of God, to be privacy to the prophecy in the direct revelation at Har Sinai, and all the terror that that entails. The Medrash is expanding and amplifying Ra'u kola om and yamdu merachok, they jumped back. Why? There's a terror involved. Hearing the word of God moves them to the limits of their being. And in Devarim we're told, Bo'er bo'esh adlev hashamayim. This wasn't just any fire. This was a volcanic eruption to the heavens. And so we understand that the Israelites were at the heart of that flame. And what is of great interest is that that reminds us of the burning bush where Moses himself was encountering God for the first time visually, and he sees the burning bush with the flame inside. Now, what I want to compare and contrast of this terrorism that's going on is the verse that opens our sedra. And what opens our sedra is something much calmer. In fact, it sounds almost like uh, a love story. Well, it's 
his father-in-law. <laughs> and I told you last week, relationships between sons-in-laws and fathers-in-law are very fraught. And what happens? And there's a big machlokas in the Rishonim, whether this happened before the Decalogue or after the Decalogue. And I don't want to get into that rabbit hole. Moshe tells his father-in-law, after their meeting for after so long, what God had done to the Paro Mitzrim. And what happens? By Yichad Yisro, he chidudin chidunim. He got goose pimples from listening to all the Toiva Asher Asoad Adnoi Yisrael Asher Tzelo Miad Mitzrayim. And Yisro then says, Boruch Adnoi Asher Itzel Eschem. Blessed is the Holy One who saved you from Mitzrayim. Ato Yodati Ki Godol Adnoi Mikol Elohim. And then he makes a rational theological choice. He was the Kohen of Midian. He had, the, the Medrash says there wasn't an Avodah Zorah that he hadn't tasted. But by just listening to Moses' recounting of Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim, he has a sudden religious conversion. Ato Yodati, ki godol Adonai mikol ho Elohim, that God is greater than every, all the other gods. So what happened? He has a party. <laughs> he has a party. Vayikach Yisro Chosein Moshe Olos Vochim. And he has a party, he brings sacrifices. Zvochim Lelohim, Vayovo Aaron, Vachol Zikne Yisrael. And Aaron and all the elders of Israel joined him in this party. Leecholechem im Chosein Moshe Lifnei Now, I have to ask you, what's missing? Who's missing from the party? Moshe is missing. Where on earth is Moshe? And for that, I am indebted to Rabbi Foreman, who in a very, very close reading is able to point out the absence of Moshe. And he tells us that the absence of Moshe is not the first time that Moshe was absent. In fact, the one important person who is missing, Moshe, we're not told by the text why he isn't there. Obviously, he wasn't. And in fact, uh, Rashi says, Vehechon Moshe, oh, he was cooking. <laughs> and the Ibn Ezra actually says, there's no need to mention Moshe because they were in Moshe's tent. Very nice. <laughs> but where was Moshe? And the Mechilta tells us, where was Moshe? Was it not he who had gone out to meet him and been there all of the honor that was shown to Yisro? He was not mentioned because coming to eat bread with Jesro, he was standing by and waiting upon them. He was a waiter. <laughs> Just like Avram Avinu was a waiter to the three Malachim. Very nice, but there is something darker going on here. The son-in-law is not present in the text at the father-in-law's party. <laughs> And this isn't the first time. Rabbi Foreman tells us that the very next verse, the father-in-law criticizes Moshe. What does he say? What is going on? It's not good what you're doing. You will wear yourself out because he saw him judging the people. Now, it's a very, very sneaky way of writing that. You could say, and the very next day, Moses' father-in-law said, it is not good, this thing that you are doing. Meaning that you didn't show up to my party. <laughs> Obviously, the next verse is about judging. You're going to wear yourself out. You have to appoint judges. But you should know that in Devarim, Moshe Rabbeinu 
does not mention Yisro as the source of judges and judges, shoftim v'shotrim. Why wouldn't he mention Yisro in Devarim? Maybe it's possible that, I mean, the Mephoshim tell us that Yisro told him Navonim and he, he omitted God from the equation. Oh, very nice. But there's no mention of the father-in-law, the Shver in Devarim, when he recounts the need for justice and judges. And it could be that it's a critique, the father-in-law's critique. Where were you? You didn't have enough time to join a feast of thanksgiving to the Almighty for his salvation. This job is getting to you. You need to have some friends. <laughs> but look at the right side in Yisro 1. Jethro is saying to his daughters, excuse me, how come you're home so early? Normally you have to fight off those, uh, the, the, those male shepherds who are trying to, to take you out. Oh no, they tell him, there was an Ish Mitzri. An Ish Mitzri came and saved us from the well. And then Jethro says to his daughters, Ayo, uh, excuse me, where is he? I mean, why didn't you bring him back? Ayo, Lomaze Azavtem Ish. Ask him to break bread. This is not the first time that, that Moshe doesn't show up to the party. I thought that was a brilliant insight. And if I can share with you one other insight of his, he compares and contrasts the relationship between the father-in-law and the son-in-law, which I will now pick up on where he leaves off. There is a comparison and he brings pages and pages of literary and semantic words that are equivalent. Moshe saves the shepherdesses. Moshe acts as an agent. God saves the people. Moshe gives their firsting drink sheep water. Moshe gives the Bnei Israel right before our Pasha the water to drink by Mora. The young women tell their father how Moshe delivered them. Moshe tells his father how God delivered them. Now comes the celebratory feast. Yisro convenes a feast in which his daughters who were saved dine in the presence of Moshe, and Yisro convenes a feast in the presence of God. Sure. Expresses a critique that Moshe is alone. Moshe doesn't initially join the gathering, and then Moshe doesn't attend the gathering. I think that this is a way of opening up, for me, the difference between Moshe and Bnei Yisrael's view of the Harsinai and Revelation, which is a visual one, and Jethro's understanding of Revelation, which is an auditory one. Vayasapeh Moshe. Moshe recounts to him, like Sipu Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. In fact, every year we go through Jethro's conversion at the Haggadah table. It's praiseworthy for us to be Mesaper, to recount like Moshe did to Yisro, not to visualize. Nowhere in the Haggadah does it ask us, I want you to close your eyes as to the visualization of the theophany on Har Sinai. Nowhere. So let's compare and contrast. You have to go far away to a Gemara in Nadarim, which makes a statement about Tzinius and why a person shouldn't appear naked and a woman and a husband and this and that. It goes all about this. And comes along a Brysa and says the following. Right after the Decalogue, Moshe says, why are you afraid? The people are afraid and they run away. And Moshe says, 
Why are you afraid? God did this whole visual thing to scare the heebie-jeebies out of you. Why? This is the, the language that Moshe uses. He created this whole volcanic uh, scenario, not because of a rational theological discourse, because that won't stop you from reverting to idolatry or to your addictions. He did this theophany to you in a visual way to scare the heebie-jeebies out of you and to provide you with the sense of busha. Now, what is this? Busha, a shame, levilti techdo, melamed. And what is this Bryce learning? Sheha busha mevia lidei they're telling us something very profound about the human soul, that my fear of sin comes from a sense of busha. And therefore, it's a good thing that a person experiences shame. In fact, someone who is a shame-faced, who doesn't have the capacity uh, to experience shame, won't sin. And someone who is brazen-faced, Wow, what a claim. Someone who has no shame, who is brazen-faced, it is clear that genetically he has not inherited his father's. He definitely wasn't there at Har Sinai. It's an amazing, outrageous claim about spiritual genetics. I can tell a yid, I can tell his pedigree that his father stood at Sinai. Why? Because he's Boshes Ponim. Now, what, what does this mean, this idea of shame? I want to share something with you. A study, uh, Jeremy Brown brought this to my attention by the American scientist called Embarrassment. That is, what are the statistics of patients who will not open up to a physician because of shame? And just look at this. It's absolutely brilliant. Embarrassment and shame was the result of failure to get a test. Now, what type of tests? So a rectal exam is 1%. Genital sexual exam, 81%. People will not tell the doctor that they need a pap smear or a colonoscopy because they knew that they would be embarrassed by the exam. It's just amazing. And if at the bottom, talking to a doctor about these issues, 49% won't do it. Talking to a nurse, 60%. <laughs> I mean, I just think that's an absolutely amazing statement about the human Ability to open up to a physician in the privacy of a physician's office. And it talks about this idea of shame. Now, what was therefore born through the revelation of Harsinai? Through the visual revelation that forced us to go back at 24 mil and back and required the angels and God to, to bring us back to the table. What interests me is what was born there. The religious peak experience of our religion 
Har Sinai, Mahamad Har Sinai, which is a paroxysmal distortion. We weren't Mahamad. We were shockling back and forth. No one was standing still. That anything after that is anticlimactic. And so the religious experiences that we seek in various forms and means, in a sense, is trying to recreate that experience, that peak experience. And nevertheless, Sinai was seeing, experiencing, knowing the self. It was a mirroring of the self. Why? Because after Sinai, I am filled with this notion of shame. Moshe tells you, I'm, I'm doing this so that you would become shameful, so that you would fear sin. I'm instinctively putting into your genes this notion of shame. The whole people saw the voices and the torches, and they say to Moshe, you speak to us. Don't let God speak to us because we will die. We will die of what? We will die of shame. And, God, and Moshe says, don't fear. God came to test you in order that you will experience shame. So Sinai is a terrifying experience. The Gemara also tells us in Shabbos 88 that the people died again and again every time they heard another ma'amar from God's voice and they needed the angels to actually revive them. There were moments when the words stood still. The extreme expression of this shameful split comes from the next story in Pasha's Kisiso, the metaphor of the golden calf, the decay of this desire and the embarrassment and the loss of shame because the people had saw that Moshe was delayed Ki voshesh Moshe, descending from the mountain. Now the word boshesh Moshe is akin to busha and shame. Adam and Eve were naked, but they were not ashamed. Ki lo yisboshashu, boshu. He came down and they saw. And what were they doing by the golden calf? It was an orgy. It was a sexual orgy. It was the revelation of that shame. So busha means shame. Boshesh means to delay. And it's the delay in satisfaction. that this, The fulfillment of desire is the opposite of shame. The delay in satisfaction in fulfillment of desire is the deep experience of shame. There's a difference between desire and desires. Being kept waiting by parents and others, let alone their size of frustration at our infant needs, inevitables instills in us a sense of shame, that we should not be desirous of anything, that we should have satiation. So our good taste shames us. And when feeling detached and uninspired and lacking desire, we may feel shame. Such is the busha, the delay, the separation from the self. So the cheta egel is the parallel to Har Sinai. What happened at the cheta egel? The fire they make the fire, but the golden calf appears by itself. Someone who who, whose parents were at Sinai is someone who, having known greatness, can recognize it and bow their heads to it and feel humbled and modest, as Israel must have felt at Sinai. But the dark side of that is that Sinai is a trauma. And I think that that brings us uh, to the difference between hearing and seeing. Because for Zornberg, the trauma of Sinai is the following. The awareness of the personal seeing is the object of God's first message to Moses at Sinai. 
That is an auditory. I want you to tell them that I brought you out of Mitzrayim. That's all rational and auditory. But then comes the visual and the terror of Sinai. It is undescribed. The people saw the voices. That doesn't make sense. Roem et hakolot. We talked about that last year, and I don't want to go back to that. That synesthetic experience. But that the thunder and lightning, the fire and the smoking darkness, the sensory trauma that precipitates the people into a new consciousness of the world. But what is that? What does it do? What does it do? To be consumed by fire is the desire and dread of those who hear voices. Remember, we are comparing this fire to Moses at the burning bush. When Moses refuses God's mission at the burning bush, the emblem of a bush that burns that is not consumed, God speaks with him for seven days. To hear God and to speak with his voice is to burn with an inner fire. To have the voice of God speak from one's own throat is to know oneself invaded and consumed. And I think that the equivalent terror is experienced by the whole people at Har Sinai on hearing God's voice. They too have become prophets, means that the fire has invaded their inner being. And maybe that, I would like to suggest, is the difference between hearing and seeing. And so the Svas Emes tells us in this beautiful insight, what is the difference between Moshe and Yisro? We have to understand what is the need for this miracle? Why do I care if they just heard the sounds without a miracle? We may answer because seeing and hearing are two distinct experiences, one unlike the other. Each one has an advantage and a disadvantage. For the seer, the choser, the visual, the mystical, the Kabbalistic, Tochazi, come and see, looks at a thing in its completeness exactly as it is. But for the hearer, the sound changes as it enters his ears. And it isn't exactly the same sound that was originally made. In fact, everyone hears something differently based on their experience of the voice. That's the advantage of seeing. But with hearing, there is an advantage. The sound enters inside through the ear, whereas the sight remains outside. I love that expression. <laughs> it's a lovely medieval view of vision and seeing. With this in mind, the verse teaches us that the children of Israel had both advantage. Roim et hakolos. They received the words in the manner of seeing sounds, such that even though they truly entered in, nevertheless they saw the sounds without any distortion. For the, for the Sfas Emes, it's all about distortion. In response to the Sfas Emes, we bring the Psikta. The Psikta had told us that, in fact, you mustn't look at it that way that everyone was looking at that fire, and the fire was burning in of them, it was like looking at a statue of the king. Everyone saw a different image, depending on their visual acuity. I'd like to end off by saying that this is the difference between Moshe and Yisra, and why Moshe couldn't attend the party. Moshe couldn't attend the party because Jethro had become a Balshuva. He had become a Ger. He had read all the websites about Judaism and said, wow, this sounds like the right way for me. And it was a rational choice. He had been to every Avodah Zorah in the world. He was the high priest of Midian. And now by Yisapeh Moshe, 
he listens to Haggadah and says, Oy vavoy, the Rabboni Shalom is best of all the best. He is the best. Moshe Rabbeinu didn't want to tell him because he's his father-in-law. <laughs> My father-in-law used to, used to tell me, I used to come to him with all the chidushim. First of all, he would, he would say, Stam drush. It's just a drush. Don't bring me your myth. And then he would say, it's all been said before, which will be the title of my book, by the way. It's all been said before. But Moshe Rabbeinu is saying about his father-in-law, you don't get it. And he do he's respectful. He just doesn't show up to the party. Because to be a Yid, genetically standing with your foot at Har Sinai, again, I don't want to get into this issue whether by Yisabe, when he showed up, Yisro was before Sinai or after Sinai. The point is, that there was an existential difference in their vision of Judaism. Jethro's Judaism was rational. It was based on the auditory. It was based on rational discourse. He was a true Maimonidean. But Moshe had seen the dark side of the divine, the terror of the burning bush. And Am Yisrael was going to be exposed to the terror of being inflamed with that fire within. And that always is fraught. Interactions with the divine are fraught. In fact, what is imbued in us? A shame, and I would add, a toxic shame. A toxic shame. Because the next parsha, what do we do? We take our clothes off. We, review, we, we, we rebel against that shame. And out comes the Egel HaZahav, the golden calf out of that fire, the fire of toxic shame. And in many ways, we come back then to my original poem from Chaim Guri. Now let's re revisit that. That toxic shame didn't just start there, according to Chaim Guri. It, it came from an original Freudian trauma, the trauma of us being on that altar that Abraham was sacrificing his son on the altar of God's expectations. God wanted that boy. Why? Why? What are we learning from this? For Chaim Guri in that last verse, Avol et he horish He bequeathed that traumatic event. Okay, he didn't die. Well, he didn't die physically, but the PTSD was now part of our genetic program. The trauma that will go back to that heim noladim umaachelet belibom. Wow, they were born with a knife in their hearts. My friends, I think that from that moment to the moment at Har Sinai, where we were born again with a fire in the heart, and the fire of this toxic shame that we've inherited throughout our long galut to the fires of Auschwitz, we are the bearers of this fraught relationship with the divine. So Mahmud Hasinai doesn't become this theological proposition because there's no Mahmud, there's no standing. It's an oscillation between the human and the divine. For us wrestling, Yisrael, Kisorisa Imelokim, 
Our lives are one constant struggle between the visual and the auditory, between what we were taught and the shame of what we were taught and the toxic shame of what that means to us in our addictions. And so the ge'ula, therefore, must be that healing rain. It says in the Medrash that actually it was burning so much that God had to bring a cloud to douse the fire because we were all on fire. He had to actually bring tal shel tchiyas amazim. That is the tal that we're looking for. We're looking for the dew of comfort, the dew of healing from this toxicity because this is our, this is our galut. And so the Cholamarbe Bisyetz Mitzrayim, every year we attempt rationally through the Haggadah to understand the meaning of the revelation of the Sipriya Mitzrayim. That's all Jethro talk. What we're doing through our own suffering in our own lives is living the Mahmad Harsinai by shockling back and forth, the shockling to and from that is our destiny. Have a wonderful week. Next week, I will be in the army in New Mexico with 86 troops trying to get them to behave whilst blowing up bombs and stuff. So we will meet in two weeks.